0: Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemog podcast. We're coming at you from Rouleau University Medical Center. I'm Roanoke. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. On today's episode, we are going to talk about the dreaded oncologic emergencies. You know, those things that you're probably going to get called about at 2 o'clock in the morning after already a busy night on call, and the things that are probably going to keep you up the rest of the night just because you're worried about how this patient's going to do. So guys, I'm really excited about this episode. I also love the fact that we had some of these other colleagues that we turned to for help in situations like this. And I really think this is going to be super informative for our listener.
1: Yeah, you know, I think one of the most important things is understanding oncologic emergencies. Often we think, oh, you're just giving steroids. It's not that big of a deal. Just give the patient steroids. Everything will be fine. But there's a lot more nuance to it. And we're going to go through that from the oncologic perspective. But like Ronick said, we have radiation oncologists, neurosurgeons, interventional radiologists that help us with, through these scenarios and we're excited to interview them today and to show you guys what their thoughts are on these situations.
2: And you know, sometimes it's easy as a medical oncology fellow to bristle a little bit when you do get called about some of these problems because a lot of them, you know, our, our chemotherapy is not going to act fast enough to, to do anything about, it. you know, we're not, not going to come in there and jab somebody in the chest with chemo and like, like it's Pulp Fiction. But I think that you know, we still have an important role helping quarterback some of that care and and figure out what teams do need to be called that can act right away, and uh, and then we're there to follow up. You know, when we see them, we'll be seeing them in clinic anyway and dealing with their cancer over the long term. So uh, getting us involved early actually does make a lot of sense most of the time.
1: Dan, I just like how you how you linked on emergencies to a syringe full of doxorubicin straight to the chest. And then went straight to
0: football in that post-Super Bowl kind of bliss. Oh, you know me. I'm a man of many interests. We learned that a long time ago, Dan. Don't worry. (laughs) All right, listeners. Well, without further ado, we move on to our Onc Emergencies episode. Hey, guys.
1: How are you doing today? Doing pretty good.
2: Yeah. Doing well. Yeah.
1: Anything new and exciting going on? finish the reunion episode of love is blind you know i don't know the order we're going to release these episodes so maybe we've referenced love is blind in another episode i don't know but what a wild reunion it was crazy don't don't tell me what happened i started at
0: your recommendation and i'm slowly making my way through all i can say is i'm
1: shocked absolutely wild this guy shake i don't endorse him i do not endorse shake (laughs) we'll just (laughs) leave it at that
0: podcast does not endorse shake we should yeah. just leave it at that before we ruin anything for our listeners and they get upset. So speaking of chaos, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit today about oncologic emergencies. This is a topic that, you know, we inevitably are going to see as fellows. I actually think casually in conversation with you guys, all of us have gotten a call about one of these in the middle of the night. And so maybe we could use this as an opportunity just to kind of talk about them and talk about the management of these individual patients and these presentations so that
1: we can, you know, learn from it together and also help our listeners. What do you guys think? Yeah, I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it. And, and I'm actually going to start out with the, with the first case today. Let's flip the script a little bit. The, our listeners are probably very confused on why I'm starting out with the case, but I was actually on call the other night and, you know, I was covering one of Ronick's calls, actually, which, you know, he owes me. So, Ronick, you owe me a big one here, but. Thanks, man. At one in the morning, I got a call about a 50 year old male veteran. He's at the VA. He had no past medical history and he described a one month history of progressive dyspnea on exertion with intermittent headaches. Prior to this, he had no issues. He said that he got more fatigued when he ran a 5K a couple weeks prior to that. This guy is a super fit guy. So this is very bizarre. And he he really came in because he was having this worsening dyspnea and he decided to come in in the middle of the night. On exam, he had decreased breath sounds in the right lung and notable facial edema. He also reported new night sweats. So what do you guys think about when you have a patient who's coming in with this new facial edema, this shortness of breath. What, what does that make you think of when we're thinking about cancer?
0: I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me when I hear kind of this constellation of symptoms is SVC syndrome. I, you know, that, that is kind of what my spidey senses are telling me. You know, the, the SVC syndrome, as we all may remember from medical school, includes things like swelling of the head and neck. P- patients can have mild dysphagia. They can present with cough. They can have visual changes given the excess edema in the face, headaches and dizziness. Sometimes they get difficulty speaking and because of the laryngeal edema that can develop. They can manifest with some stupor or confusion. And again, that's related to edema. This time it's more cerebral in nature. And of course, with you compressing all of the major blood vessels going to the brain, some element of hemodynamic compromise may also be part of that clinical picture.
2: Yeah. And I mean, if you had to make a list of like Places where you don't want edema, I think brain is probably number one, and number two is probably larynx. So you know, of all the things, yeah, having having obstruction in the the vessels that drain all the structures in your you know upper half of your body or upper part of your chest rather, it's a pretty big deal.
1: And Dan, one of the things that people wonder is is when do we get? We learned in medical school all these physical exam signs. One of the things is having these veins that pop up on your chest. What's the time course on that? And how can we think of SVC syndrome, whether it's acute or a chronic situation?
2: Yeah, classically, those um, those venous varices or sort of uh, collateral circulation that develops. It's, it's something that we have sort of in our minds associated with SVC syndrome. But in the most acute cases, that's not going to be there. There's a very striking picture in, in New England Journal that I always remember of an older man who has like very acute, like hyperacute SVC syndrome, just a clot formed in his SVC. And he's, you know, completely red from just above the nipple line upwards. And everything below is white, but no varices at all. So really, it's more in your subacute chronic SVC syndromes that you're going to get that on the order of weeks to months of progressive dysfunction of the the venous strangers of the upper extremities and head.
1: And I think that really helps because oftentimes with some of these cancers, it's not necessarily incredibly acute like a clot would be there are sometimes when and oftentimes we see some of these patients with collateralization on their chest because cancer doesn't always form you know and in, in a matter of hours it takes time for the cancer to form and to progress and to oftentimes slowly cause progression that can result in collateralization but it's good to know that it can happen very acutely and it can happen more subacute or chronically with with some of the, our patients
2: Yeah. And, you know, a lot like the uh, analogous situation in in the chest where you think about sort of a stable angina being like a chronic narrowing of the vessels around the heart versus an acute MI being a thrombus forming. When you do get those very acute cases, it's almost always because tumors invaded into the SVC and prompted the formation of an occlusive thrombus there.
0: And I think this guy is the perfect example of someone that is a little bit dif- more difficult to ascertain exactly when all this started, right? He's got, sounds like a great functional status at baseline. Perhaps he's better able to compensate for some of these these issues that are happening, given maybe better pulmonary reserve, all those things. And so, you know, looking back, perhaps, you know, this history of him getting more dysmic during a 5K seems significant. But, you know, I'm sure at the time he didn't think much of it. So, um, other than the fact that maybe he felt like he needed to train harder for the next one. And you know, one trick also uh, that, that
2: you can use a lot of times whenever you're trying to figure out if somebody has had a significant change in, in their appearance, um, because the patient himself is looking at himself in the mirror every morning and may not notice a subtle increase in his sort of facial circularity over time. But you get out their driver's license, look at that compared to them, you know, when you're seeing in the emergency room, sometimes that can give you a little bit of a reference point.
0: The millennial and me went straight to pull out their Instagram and look at their most recent post. But I guess driver's license works too. Classic Rona. Classic. <laughs> what Rona. can I say? What can I say?
1: <laughs> so continuing on w- with this case, he, uh, as per usual in the emergency department, got a CTA of his chest, and there was concern for for SVC syndrome with a mediastinal mass that was invading the SVC. So, Rona, can you tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on on imaging studies for concern for SVC syndrome, as well as the differential for a mediastinal mass?
0: Yeah. So so ideally, you want a CT venogram of the chest. A lot of that's happening because you have venous congestion. Um, and so essentially, you can, you can appreciate kind of the degree of, of vascular congestion based on uh, the CT scan, the CT venogram of the chest. In terms of differentials for mediastinal masses, Perhaps we recalled the five T's as part of something that we learned when studying for our step exams. So the first one on that list is going to be your thymoma. The second can be a terrible lymphoma, like a B or T cell lymphoma. You can have testicular cancer present as a mediastinal mass. You can have a teratoma also present as a mediastinal mass. And then, of course, you can also worry about thyroid malignancies causing these issues as well. And then certain things, depending on the patient that we may have to think about as well, would be something like, do they have a central line? Is a central line causing occlusion and, and resulting in SPC syndrome? Or is there a new clot either because of a central line or the formation of a clot because of some other anatomic uh, abnormality? So these are just some kind of some things to keep in our minds when we're evaluating these patients.
2: Yeah, and it's not always the central line that's, that's in them at that time either. You know, sometimes if folks have had a history of many, many central lines over the course of their life, you know, maybe they had childhood leukemia or some other chronic condition that required central venous access over a long period of time, they can get some degree of stenosis and scarring of the SVC that can cause this too.
0: And and looking back, guys, I actually had a case of SVC syndrome that I saw as a resident. And, you know, the first thought that goes to your mind is like, oh my gosh, I need to get the answer to this question. You know, what does this person have? But I was quickly reminded of the fact that a diagnosis doesn't really matter if the person's not going to live through the acute issue. So, you know, I think I think this also gives us a great reminder of, yes, as internists, the inner internist in us wants the answer. But that first step, uh, if we think of like our standard ABCs, is we we got we to gotta get control of, of the situation, especially that, that airway, and help kind of uh, uh, open up some of these vessels that are occluded.
1: And Ronak, that, that's the most important thing when we think about a lot of these oncologic emergencies is how do we temporize the situation now before we think about definitive treatment of the cancer? And when we think about these mediastinal masses or other tumors that generally cause SVC syndrome— there's three main ways that I think about that we, how we can treat it. And you could do a combination of many of these measures in some cases. One way is chemotherapy. So there are certain tumors that are incredibly chemo responsive and melt away fast in a matter of, of hours to days. When I think about that, I think of testicular cancers, these germ cell tumors, lymphomas melt away very quickly, and small cell lung cancers melt away very quickly. We have our IR colleagues who can put in stents, and then we also have radiation oncologies who can provide radiation to shrink the tumor and relieve the obstruction. But also one of the most important things to do in these situations, if you have severe laryngeal edema or severe cerebral edema, even though we mentioned that you can have a terrible lymphoma as a cause for SVC syndrome, steroids are still incredibly important if you're having life-threatening complications, and that's why what Roenick said is, is perfect, that we still need to focus on the ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation, because those are the most important things for these patients. So oftentimes we do give steroids in many cases. If we have to, we try to avoid it because we worry about losing the diagnostic yield of biopsies. Because if, for example, you gave a patient steroids, you may not be able to diagnose the lymphoma. But the way I think about this, if we gave them Treated them with radiation, we would also lose the ability to get a very definitive diagnosis in many cases. So, I think the most important thing is temporizing the patients, and sometimes st- that means using steroids. But right now, I want to shift gears a little bit. We have pre-recorded interviews with from Ronak, uh, with an interventional radiologist and a radiation oncologist. So, let's flip to those now and, and get back to the other onc
0: so for this first case, we have a guest host here with us today, Dr. Ryan Miller from Jefferson University uh, Hospital in in Philadelphia. Ryan, thanks so much for being here today.
3: Awesome, thanks for having me, Ronick. I really appreciate it.
0: So just so everybody knows, Ryan and I go back years now. We actually met at a scholarship event way back in medical school, and we've yeah. kept in touch since then. And we, you know, we were both in Philadelphia. Unfortunately, I haven't seen them in a few years because of because of the pandemic. But it's it's Thank really nice to to reconnect. Thanks again so much for for being our our discussant.
3: Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. Like I said, really uh, really happy to be here. Yeah, man. It's been a long time since we've it's been, got it's up, been a but, long uh, time. Yeah, it's but good to see you, man.
0: Ryan, Why don't you give our our listeners a little bit of of info about you? Tell us a little bit about yourself and what are you watching on TV right now? Just out of curiosity.
3: Yeah, for sure. So so again, I'm Ryan. I'm a fourth year radiation oncology resident uh, doing my training over at Thomas Jefferson University. Uh, prior to residency, I did my uh, medis- medical school education over at Cooper Medical School. So right in Camden, New Jersey. And then prior to that, I did my undergrad at UCLA. Currently right now, so I'm actually big on secession. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen that show on HBO, but Really good comedy. I've been kind of getting through that. Also been watching a bunch of Netflix documentaries. If you haven't seen the Tinder Swindler, I definitely recommend that. It's oh I'll add that one. to my list. Yeah, add it to the list, man. It's good.
0: That's that's awesome. Well, Ryan, you know, let's just go ahead and jump right into these cases. In the first discussion that we were that the guys and I were having was about a case of SBC syndrome. And just to give you a little bit of context. We had discussed that based on the clinical picture, we were concerned about SVC syndrome, mm-hmm. and you know, being you know in residency now in fellowship, we often get a phone call about patients that come in with concerns for SVC syndrome, and they they come over to to oncology as a as a consult but we often find in the acute setting, there isn't a lot that oncologists can do. And often we rely on, on specialists like yourself to help us with this. So, you know, I was curious, uh, the things that, that things that we never seem to talk about in residency and in, in fellowship training is what is, like, what is the role of radiation in SVC syndrome? Can you tell us a little bit about how you guys decide who's a good candidate? Kind can of just take us through that thought process.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a it's a good question. And, you know, SVC syndrome is something that we do see pretty commonly and we are, you know, very frequently consulted on. And I guess, you know, when I think about you know how a radiation oncology thinks when we kind of tackle SVC, is, you know, first and foremost, you know, ideally from a rad-on perspective, you know, we would like to have kind of a histologic diagnosis before, you know, we start treatment, especially if this is a new presentation and you know, a diagnosis hasn't been established because really, you know, our goal as as radonks is we don't want to compromise, you know, an opportunity for curative therapy. So, you know, in most cases, when we do get called, you know, I would say from a Radonc perspective, it is safe to delay, you know, radiation to pursue workup. That being said, though, to your question, you know, there are a few kind of more emergent situations that we think about. And you know, the big three that come to mind um, are really based on symptoms. So if you've got a patient with, you know, hemodynamic instability, that would have us kind of a little bit more alarmed. If you've got, you know, a patient who's got worsening, you know, respiratory status. So if they're starting to notice some stridor on exam, or if their SATs are starting to drop, you know, the other consideration too, is if a patient starts to have kind of more in the way of neurologic symptoms. So maybe they're starting to get confused, maybe a patient subtended, all of those symptoms would be a red flag to us and would certainly, you know, that, that would warrant a consult and, and a call to us, you know, fairly quickly. And usually when teams call us, you know, a lot of the medical management's already been started, right? So usually a patient, you know, is on oxygen, sometimes um, steroids have been initiated. For some patients, they might even be on diuretics. But, you know, the, the most important thing, you know, when, when teams call out to us, you know, we want to have some level of imaging performed. Usually, you know, a chest X ray is done in the emergency room. But ideally, you know, if we could get, you know, a CT of the chest, that would be ideal. You know, some teams also will do an ultrasound um, just to kind of rule out other etiologies like a thrombosis. Because again, it's important to keep in mind with SVC that it's not always malignancy. For the for the vast majority, it is. But you know, you always want to rule out some of those other causes. So once some of those initial studies are done and a team calls us for a consult. Again, we really go through kind of those big 3. So, is there any hemodynamic instability? What's their airway like? And, you know, are they having kind of any worsening neurologic symptoms?
0: That's that's really really good to know. And thanks for sharing that tidbit about what we should be doing at least from the primary team perspective in terms of getting them ready for a potential radiation procedure. And so, you know, if there was a call to you kind of in the middle of the night, let's let's say for a situation like this, it sounds like, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that perhaps, you know, in an, in an acute situation, there may be more likely of a role for someone like a vascular surgeon to kind of intervene in a situation like this, maybe for a stent or maybe IR, depending on what's available at the institution to go and intervene. And perhaps radiation should be something that's reserved for after the acute situation has been has been figured out. But, you know, are there ever situations, you know, you mentioned those three, would those be strong enough indications to take somebody for a radiation uh, treatment uh, instead of doing something like a stent, or, or is that you know are there nuances to that beyond just this discussion?
3: Yeah, it's it's a good point, and you know I think one of the things that we do as radiation oncologists is that you know after we've been consulted by the primary team, you know we are in close contact with our interventional radiology colleagues because it really is kind of a multidisciplinary discussion where we have to kind of figure out what's what's right for the patient. So some of the things that would kind of, I guess, lean us more towards kind of more of an IR type procedure, something along the lines of, you know, an endovascular stent. So, you know, stents, the nice thing about them is that they give very quick symptomatic relief. So I think the thing to keep in mind with radiation is that radiation can certainly have benefit, but it's not going to be immediate. You know, for the most part, radiation can have an effect within you know, several days to several weeks. And a lot of that really depends on what the underlying tumor histology is. But you know, stents kind of give a, a much quicker relief, usually within you know, a matter of even a couple you know, days even. You know, the other thing to keep in mind with the stent is that some patients who maybe already have a diagnosis of cancer, many of them have already received radiation and sometimes what we have to keep in mind is that additional radiation might not be feasible because they might have already maxed out kind of on the amount of treatment that they can receive for so for those patients pursuing a non oncologic treatment or a you know a non tumor directed therapy might be best suited so a stent for a patient like that could be good and you know the nice thing about a stent too is that you know uh, an IR specialist can place a stent and that that doesn't prohibit a biopsy from being done. It doesn't prohibit, you know, definitive diagnosis from being established. And it, it doesn't prohibit um, potentially curative treatment from being performed. So for a lot of those reasons, you know, we do try to get IR involved pretty quickly. You know, that that's really kind of the, the main thought that we have, especially when we do get called in the middle of the night. But, but that being said, you know, we do sometimes get involved kind of in the upfront setting. And again, when we think about, treatments. And and what I think is important for some of our other specialists to know is that, you know, radiation kind of the process in which it's done, because again, I think a lot of people to, to them, radiation oncology might be a little bit of a black box, right? You know, they're not quite sure exactly what that procedure entails. And when a patient's undergoing radiation, the first thing that we do typically is that we have a patient lie flat on a table and we do a CT scan or essentially a simulation scan where we kind of immobilize the patient and essentially planned for, for you know, a treatment course. And for some of the patients with SVC syndrome, you know they're not able to lie flat. Some of these patients have such severe respiratory compromise that they're not able to lie for an extended period of time. So for those reasons, you know, radiation might not necessarily be the best treatment, but you know, for patients who are able to tolerate in terms of treatment course, we might do anywhere from let's say one to maybe 10 treatments in a palliative setting. For patients with curable, you know, curable cancer, we might do upwards of several weeks of treatment. It really just depends. You know, sometimes we'll try to get patients kind of uh, larger doses of radiation up front to try to kind of help with some of that symptom relief and then maybe kind of curtail it to something a little bit smaller as we get further along But again, it's really a multidisciplinary discussion. You know, we're never operating, you know, in a vacuum, you know, when we make these decisions.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And I think you answered uh, a big question that I've had. It's like we kind of just put this console order into radiation oncology and then like something happens and then someone tells us that they're being wheeled down there and some, you know, magic happens and they come back and patients feel better. But, But this is actually really helpful in giving us some insight into what you all do and the important work that you do. That's great. And I, and I think that that really helps me at least kind of better understand how, how you all fit into this picture. And I, and I think what I want to highlight for the listeners from what you said actually is just, radiation has a role, but, you know, radiation upfront can potentially get in the way of deciding what someone really has getting a good tissue sample, which can affect their overall treatment course. So, you know, it sounds like if we can not, not avoid it if it's necessary, but it's, it's good to have that discussion upfront, but as the medicine people, we shouldn't be upset. If someone tells us that radiation is not indicated because you guys are also looking at it from the perspective of this is potentially curative. Let's make sure we know what we're treating and then we're happy to get involved down the
3: road. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it.
0: Cool. And, and, and just as another takeaway, you know, essentially for us as the people calling these console often, you know, essentially the, the, the basic ABCs, you know, making sure that they have an airway, that they're breathing okay, they got good circulation, getting some sort of imaging, CT scan to make sure we have a good understanding, giving things like uh, medications like steroids or uh, Lasix if needed to kind of manage the acute situation, and then kind of uh, giving you guys a heads up about the case. So that's awesome. Thank you so much for for sharing that with us. That That was really, really helpful. Of course. I'm so excited to introduce our next guest. This is Dr. Rupal Parikh, joining us from the University of Pennsylvania, where she is currently doing her training in IR. I'm so excited to hear her perspective. Rupal, thanks so much for joining us today.
4: Yeah, thank you so much, Ronak. I'm really excited to be here um, and share some of my thoughts and experience.
0: Rupal, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and introduce yourself to our listeners?
4: So as you mentioned, um, I'm in my interventional radiology training. I'm in, my, I'm in my sixth and final year of residency in interventional and diagnostic radiology. So I'm very excited to be finishing up this year. I'm originally from New Jersey, but um, have been living in Philadelphia for the past five years. So I have definitely enjoyed being here and I'm excited to, to see what kind of comes next.
0: Awesome. And why don't you tell us a fun fact about yourself? What's one fun fact you like to share with people that you've just met?
4: The second time that my husband and I met, we were on a Pizza Hut commercial.
0: That is awesome. (laughs) Uh, We will have to look up that commercial on YouTube and put it in our show notes for all of our listeners to take a look at in their free time, if that's okay with you. (laughs) (laughs) So Ripple, you know, I, the case that we're going to be talking about today is a case that we unfortunately see quite often coming to us on the oncology service. It's a case of SVC syndrome. And, you know, in many cases, this SVC syndrome is often caused by external compression of a mass, often a malignant tumor. And so naturally the phone call or the page comes to us as the fellows uh, in oncology But, you know, in situations like this, at least in that acute kind of management component to the patient's care, we often rely on the expert work of a lot of our colleagues in medicine, one of which is interventional radiologists. So I was hoping maybe you could kind of talk us through, you know, when is a patient a good candidate for an intervention by someone like an interventional radiologist versus when we need to maybe think about getting, you know, like a vascular surgeon involved or or something like that?
4: when we talk about etiology of SVC syndrome, I think you touched a little bit on um, it being related to either extrinsic compression um, from, let's say um, a, a mass in the mediastinum, or it can be related to stenosis or occlusion of either the brachycephalic mains or the SVC figuring out what the etiology of the SVC syndrome is really important um, in order to kind of go down a pathway to determine which treatment would be most optimal for this patient. So in the setting of, you know, prior central venous catheters, you know, cardiac pacer leads, these can lead to thrombosis and occlusion of the IVC. And so these would be patients who could potentially benefit from an endovascular procedure. In addition, there's patients who may, you know, present with SVC syndrome in the setting of malignancy. And these patients can also benefit from an endovascular procedure, depending on what that malignancy is and whether it's radiosensitive or responsive to chemotherapy. You know, it's I think kind of like the short answer to your original question is figuring out what the etiology of the SVC syndrome is. Mm And if it is deemed that this patient, it will be best treated with an endovascular procedure, then one important kind of um, element to being able to treat the patient endovascularly is making sure that they have a blood vessel that can be accessed. So either neck veins, arm veins, femoral veins, something that that a sheath and catheter can be put in through in order to do all of the initial diagnostic work, angioplasty, stenting, so on and so forth to have some sort of access.
0: So in terms of in terms of potential therapeutic uh, interventions that an interventional radiologist is able to kind of use in a situation like this, I think you kind of touched on endovascular scenting would you guys also be doing things like angioplasty? Like, is that all within the realm of kind of the work that an IR physician can do? Or, or you know, again, is that more of a multidisciplinary approach?
4: Yeah, definitely. So that when I um, say endovascular, I basically mean everything from doing the initial diagnostic ven- venography to doing just, you know, balloon angioplasty to actually placing a stent, And so depending on, again, what the etiology of the SVC syndrome is, you know, sometimes patients have cardiac pacing wires and they have SVC occlusion or stenosis in the setting of those pacing wires. Then a discussion is had with interventional cardiology or cardiology of, you know, what, what, how best to treat that patient and what their considerations are around basically using a balloon to plasty the SVC with those cardiac pacers in place. And And I think that's, you know, if if a multidisciplinary um, discussion is had and the decision is made to do an angioplasty that can always be attempted, sometimes it doesn't work and these patients may need a stent in the future. And so in that case, those pacers, pacer wires potentially would need to be removed. Um, But either way, we do angioplasty, oftentimes in the case of malignant obstruction, uh, we go straight to stenting because the angioplasty is usually not sufficient. But in addition to that, sometimes these patients can also have clot. And so if the if on the initial diagnostic imaging, um, if there is clot that's noted, then a thrombectomy would initially be performed prior to that stent placement and angioplasty
0: if they if they let's say they're on um a doac or something like that and they took it that morning and then they came into the hospital that evening let's say is it necessary to reverse these patients or is it safe to kind of proceed with the procedure if it was acute in nature if they're like in you know right. severe respiratory distress and such
4: right and i think you know there's definitely um you can make a case by case kind of determination Um, We have guidelines around holding anticoagulation, but at the end of the day, they are guidelines. And so um, based on the operating provider and on the patient case, you know, typically we do like to hold anticoagulation, um, especially if it's a more challenging case, because the things that we worry about in terms of risks of recanalizing um, the SVC in a patient who has SVC occlusion are hemothorax or hemopericardium and and developing cardiac tamponade. So in fact, we actually prep these patients for, um, you know, do it like we prep the chest to do a pericardiocentesis in case that's needed for the procedure. So, you know, it's definitely, you know, safer to hold anticoagulation. Mm -hmm. Um, However, if the patient is, you know, in a really dire state, and depending on if the SVC is not totally occluded and, and there's not really any sharp re- re-canalization needed, then, a, you know, an ordering provider to um, referral provider discussion can be had about how to manage that patient's anticoagulation and whether awesome. referral needed.
0: Okay. Awesome. I, I think that's everything that I had. Any final thoughts from you? I You know, I yeah. thought that this was really helpful to, again, in the same way that with, with radiation oncology, it, you guys kind of seem to function in this own little world in a separate part of the hospital. And, you know, being internists, it's easy for us to just put a consult into our EMR and, you know, give you guys a call, but magic happens after the patient gets wheeled away to IR and then they come back and, you know, it helps us with all of the work that we do. So it's really nice to kind of hear what happens behind the scenes from your perspective, for sure
4: right right yeah i totally agree it's it's nice to have kind of like a multidisciplinary understanding of you know what is the appropriate treatment for the patient and i you know totally agree if the if it is like a radiosensitive lymphoma then i think it's a good indication to do a more like emergent or urgent radiation treatment as opposed to placing stents which are more permanent and and it's essentially a foreign material in in the body and so you know one thing to kind of keep in mind is once a angioplasty has been performed, a ticking timer kind of starts in terms of intimal hyperplasia. And so, you know, at some point in the future, those stents could need um, a tune-up or the area of angioplasty would need a tune-up. So, um, you know, being a, a little bit careful about patient selection is definitely important. And, and that goes back to your first question.
0: That's awesome. Thank you. I didn't even think about that. That's that's really, really helpful. Well, you know, that's, like I said, that's all the questions that I have. Ripple. I thank you so much once again for joining us. This was incredibly enlightening. And I think our listeners are really going to take a lot away from this. Uh, so thanks. Thanks again.
4: Yeah, of course. No problem. Thank you for having me. No problem.
0: Well, guys, I think we once again had another great discussion about oncologic emergencies. And I, I think I'm actually most thankful that we finally got to kind of see this pers- this perspective from people outside of our specialty. Because I think, you know, all we do is tell the primary team or to consult some of these other individuals. And we, you know, follow up with them when they've made up their minds. But it's very interesting to kind of hear their perspective, what their thought process is, as they kind of navigate, you know, some of these issues based on based on their specialties. Um, And so I want to give a, a big shout out to our our guests. Thank you guys so much for taking the time out of your super busy schedules to join us for this episode. And we're we're super glad that you were able to do so. Well, guys, that's, that's all I have. I don't know if you guys have any other final thoughts.
1: Uh, One final thought I had, I know I endorsed Fresca a couple of episodes ago, but I just, Costco just had this large case of Topo Chico's and I'm going to go back on that. I'm still a Topo Chico fan.
2: And yeah, I'll just say, uh, you know, regardless of whether you're a Fresca or a Topo Chico person, just reiterating the the huge thanks to our guests. Um, It's so awesome to have those perspectives. So we, we just, we really appreciate their taking the time.
0: So guys, until next time, take care. See you later. See you later. Peace.